Recorded live. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Women of Revolution. I am, your, I am Susan Bonner, and with me is Deb, my brilliant researcher, and she found a wonderful lady again. And this is a historical endeavor to give you the facts about the women of the revolution, not what the frogs have been telling you. Deb and I also have mixed feelings because either I'm crying because I was robbed or I'm angry because I was robbed of this wonderful history and these wonderful women. And how are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm doing just fine. Just oh. fine. Good, 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 good. Um, we have been doing this for three and a half years, almost going on four, and we haven't run out of women. So um, believe it or not, you've been robbed too. That's the only way I can put it. And the, today we are going to go back to the Northern Theater. Now, we always do a Patriot woman, two Patriot women, and then two Loyalist women. And we ran out of Loyalist women, but I, as I say every show, God said, oh, no, 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 no. You're going to do Loyalist as well. And we have found quite a few. The last lady we did, uh, we had a great journal from her. And now we have another lady with a diary. And she's a loyalist, and her name is Sarah Frost. And we're going to be going to Long Island and then back up and up to, to New York a little bit into Canada. And this account of this part of the Revolutionary War was like a treasure find because she really lays out what it was like to be a loyalist in the Revolutionary War. And, of course, she's pregnant. I don't think we have had anyone who wasn't pregnant during the time, Deb. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to jump right into it. Um, usually I have a little back and forth, but we have a lot to cover, and I definitely want her diary uh, read, and Deb will end up doing that. So I'm going to start with a PDF that Deb had sent me, and it's called The Diary of Sarah Frost. 1783, The Sounds and Silences of a Woman's Exile. Now, is that what her diary is called? Well, um, it's, yeah, yeah, that's what, uh, see, the, the thing is that we must bring up is the original diary was lost, but Glenn Davies, who is the author of the book, The Diary of Sarah Frost, um, 1783, The Sounds and Silences of a Woman's Exile, she put it together. She went over um, a lot of the papers that she could find that were, you know, copies or, you know, whatever she could find on it, and she pieced it back together um, because I guess it had been, uh, you know, copied and passed down, and and she did a really great job of it. So we're very, very... Uh, appreciative of uh, Glenn Davies' work here, because if she hadn't pieced it all together, we wouldn't have the book. And you, you can uh, you can find uh, her in the uh, papers of the Bibliographical Society of Canada, Volume 2, Number 2, 2004, if you want to you know, do a little more research after you, uh, you uh, listen to the show. It's really a neat Neat thing. Well, and it's and we've been finding out that the Canadians are very proud of their loyalists because yeah. they have a couple of different sites that you've gone to to get this information, and they are they are very proud that they were loyalists. 
Yes. Yes. Now it was like going back home, you know, because America wasn't Britain anymore. And um, they were... Uh, yeah, they weren't treated very well. The loyalists weren't, and uh, I mean, it, it basically got to the point where the loyalists were well, they were treat you. Know, they became the enemy, and of course, the rebels became the enemy to them. So it it, it got really nasty, unfortunately, between the the uh, citizens of the colonies, and which is you know why it. it not only a, a revolution, it was a civil war. Right. So I'm going to start with this one. And this is by Gwendolyn Davies. And we, of course, as always, we we highlight multiple sites. And um, they have there's a really good article about where these loyalists were. And they're going to be on Long Island, which I was born and raised on Long Island. In the last two shows, we were highlighting Massachusetts, where Deb was born and raised. So this is really neat that we can do this. And um, starting diary notes, Harriet Blodjet may be a response to external influences. Such seems to be the situation of Sarah Frost, who for one brief moment in the history of 18th century revolutionary North America responded to the external influences of war dislocation, and exile by keeping the diary of the influences, a diary of the voyage from New York to St. John N.B. in one of the Loyalist fleets of 1783. And we're going to be talking about all of this. And I do need you to get up that other article about her to read the first couple of paragraphs. Loyalist women in New Brunswick. Okay, so... In doing so, she has left us with a personal insight into both the sounds and silences of women's exile as approximately 30,000 Tory refugees left their homes in America for the uncertainties of resettlement in the Atlantic region of British North America. Now, that's a lot of people, and I think this is the first time we've actually, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, this is actually the first time we've had a number of how many actual um, loyalists left their homes. And that's yeah. a big, that's big. That's 30,000. I don't think we've ever heard that before. So that's good that you did that. Involuntarily, Sarah Frost has also bequeathed to literary historians a set of challenging editorial problems still unresolved today in the absence of her original manuscript. Four versions of her diary published in book form, as well as three different surviving handwritten copies purportedly made by her descendants, Add to the dilemma of how, indeed, to read the sounds and silences of Sarah Frost's text. And that's what Deborah was just talking about. Thank God we had her to do so. And you have said once, you've said this once before, many times, that more and more people are starting to do this as well. Mm-hmm. Going back. Yeah. In many respects, Sarah Frost was very typical of loyalist women facing exile at the conclusion of the American Revolution in 1783. Raised in Stamford, Connecticut as Sarah Schofield, she grew up in a family firmly established in the community. This stability meant that she she had close ties with many friends and relatives, a factor that hovers as a subtext behind her diary as she describes the preparation for her departure. I'm going to go, I'm going to toss this over to Deb. She's got a little, a uh, couple paragraphs to read from another article about her. I'll shed some more light on her. 
1754 in Stanford, Connecticut, and she married William Frost in 1773. She was the mother of 10 children, and she died in Kingston, New Brunswick in 1817. Sarah Frost was a young wife and mother in Stanford, Connecticut, when the American Revolutionary War disrupted kinship ties and forced the Frost family into exile. In 1775, Sarah's father, Josiah Schofield, was a sergeant in the Revolutionary Army that tried to defend New York against British capture. Her brother, Gershom Schofield, also served the Patriot cause throughout the war. Meanwhile, townsmen in Stamford denounced Sarah's husband, William Frost, for his loyalist leanings. Forced to flee for protection to the British lines, the Frost lived in a loyalist encampment on Lloyd's Neck, Long Island, during much of the war. From there, William participated in raids on Patriot strongholds, including one against his hometown of Stamford on July 22, 1781. There, loyalist raiders captured the Reverend Moses Mather and 48 men at worship at the Congress congregational meeting house stripped men and women of their valuables, took any horses they could round up, and carried their captives and booty back to Lloyd's neck. Such counter-revolutionary activity sealed the fate of the Frost family when the Patriots won the war. Which is, you know, we have come across this before where the families were torn in two because of the... Uh, their, you know, political leanings and their their beliefs. You know, I wanted they. It was like you have to remember that a lot of the American colonists weren't happy with what King George the Third was doing with the colonies. I mean, they lived there and they were American colonists, and King George comes in and tries to uh, start, you know, as they say today, micromanaging them and taking their money. But they they also didn't want to, you know, leave leave England. They didn't want to. Uh, they weren't for independence. But unfortunately, that's uh, not the way it went. So well, and that's what we don't want here. Um, I hate to say it, but these people who want to destroy America have no idea the horror they're going, that they're going to be subject to. And again, it's because we don't know our history and they're trying to erase it every single day. Yes. So I'm going to go to All Things Liberty because I'm going to talk about them, uh, what was happening on Long Island because that's where they ended up. And following their victory at the Battle of Long Island on August 27, 1776, the British established their headquarters in New York City, where they remained throughout the war. They extended their control eastward into Long Island, which I was born and raised on. Well, I was born in Manhattan, which is an island too, I'm in New York, but then I was born, I was raised on Long Island. Tending to use it as a combination barracks, larder, and fortress. Now, Long Island is shaped like a fish. It looks exactly like a fish. So it's, it's, really, it's really a peninsula. I mean, you can call an island. It's the same thing with Rhode Island. Rhode Island is a peninsula, but they call it an island. And um, it's got the, the top of part of it that is attached to the rest of New York, which is where, where Long Island is completely surrounded by water. On the north side, the west side, the only side I don't think it's, like, it's north, 
south, north, south, and east, all surrounded by water. And then the beginning of Long Island is attached to the mainland of New York. So um, there's parts of it that you can only get to by boat. And Fire Island, which is completely destroyed now because of Hurricane Sandra, um, Sandy, that, is a, that was a, an outlying island, and that you could only get to by boat as well. So strategically, it was good to have control of Long Island, but it was bad too because of the different ways you couldn't, couldn't just get through it. You have to, like I said, have a boat. The same thing with Staten Island. Staten Island is completely separate from New York, and the only way you can get to it is by boat. Now, well, now we know we have bridges, the Staten Island Bridge and all that. But still, on Long Island, there's, there's only one way out, baby. That's it. And the rest is by boat, even to this day. So there's only one highway going in and one highway going out. And uh, the Long Island Expressway, that's what it's called. And uh, the rest, you have to get to And that, that goes in has tributaries all through the island once you got off of the uh, Long Island Expressway. But back then, it's the same thing. They had one road going in, one road going out, the rest was boats. So just to give you a little heads up. And the south part of the uh, island, or right now, the, the, the very southern part is just nothing but rich people. As a matter of fact, I think Clinton, Hillary, the Pusher of Benghazi, I think she's got two houses down there. But it's always been very wealthy. Northern part of Long Island has always been very wealthy. Now, the Suffolk County, where I was born, which they're going to talk about, where I grew up, that was just the root, that was regular people, okay? It was just the regular population. But the southern part of it and the northern part of it was always more well-to-do, and it still is to this day. Okay. Um, where was I? The British studied the island's northern shoreline with fortifications intended to enforce the British occupation, shield their Manhattan nerve center from attack from the east, and launch attacks against rebel-held ports across Long Island Sound in Connecticut. Now, Long Island Sound is the interior, um, part, the interior body of ocean, and. I, didn't, I wasn't there. I was in Suffolk County. So we were over by the bay, uh, the Great South Bay. And if you went past the Great South Bay, you ended up in the ocean. And Fire Island was kind of like the uh, barrier between the Atlantic and the Great South Bay. He's there talking about um, the northern fortifications. So, and it, and it, I'm trying to explain this. I hope I'm doing a good job, Deb. <laughs> So here, here you have this fish, okay, and across from the northern shore of the fish is Connecticut, and it's just a bay. But the Great South Bay opens up into the ocean, and the northern bay does too, but most of it is just in the interior and connects to New York and to Connecticut. So it was a big, a big distance to go from, say, Connecticut to the North Shore. And you could actually fortify it and you could actually get people out of there and they could be trapped. So that's why they wanted the forts over the North Shore, because there's wide open ocean on the South Shore. Does that make sense? Huh? Yeah. Okay. 
Okay. Um, some of these sports were named only briefly, others more or less permanently. Due to its distance from New York City and its heavily wig population, Suffolk County, where I was raised, comprising the eastern two-thirds of the island, posed the greatest challenge to the British. Like I said, um, most of the population was there, and the rest of it was wide open ocean. You know, go from the Great South Bay, hit Fire Island, and you're out in the ocean. I mean, they couldn't even catch you if they wanted to. Um, let's see. Ultimately, the British constructed a number of forts in or near the western sections of the county contending themselves in mounting foraging, effective plundering expeditions further east after their Sag Harbor base was destroyed by return Jonathan Meade in 1777. The key British bastions were constructed in the Ford-like harbors set along the North Shore of the Huntington and Oyster Bay in neighboring Queens County. Now, um, I, don't, I can read with this, but I don't think I'm going to see. Queens, count, Queens is part of Long Island. Queens and Brooklyn. They don't count themselves as that, but they are. They're still part of the, the fish. But over the years, they've just been taken over as, you know, part of Manhattan. So, Beginning in 1777, Lieutenant Colonel John Graves Simcoe ordered, turned Oyster Bay Village into an armed camp and used its harbor to ship out ship out forage, food, and wood to the British Army in New York City. Yes, believe it or not, Long Island had, like we always talk about, uh, they had forests there. Matter of fact, Fire Island, when I left in 1995, was still heavily wooded. Uh, the island was severely, I mean, really heavily wooded. You wouldn't have thought that any part of New York would be like this. But just like upstate, it was the same thing there. Um, yeah. Further east, the British constructed Fort Slongo and in 1780 established a new outpost, Fort St. George, at Mastic Bay along the Great South Bay on Long Island's south shore. Mastic is going out towards the Hamptons. But the British presence in Suffolk was anchored by Fort Franklin, strategically positioned on a bluff situated on Lloyd's Neck, a peninsula, a peninsula which extended northward from Huntington. Named for Benjamin Franklin's loyalist son, William Franklin, the fort controlled access from Long Island Sound to the waters of Oyster Bay and Cold Spring Harbor. Additionally, the fort's garrison and guns, along with the satellite encampments, provided protection for Tory raiders. The whaleboat men who descended on rebel towns across Long Island Sound in Connecticut. These guerrillas and plunderers camped in the woods, fields, and fields of East Fort Franklin and used the inlet between the neck and the mainland to shelter their watercraft. Loyalists provided the bulk of the troops in the garrisons east of Queens County, and Fort Franklin was no exception. When it was established in 1778, the post-war garrison uh, by the 3rd Battalion Ludlows of General Oliver Delancey's Tories Regiment, who remained there until 1780. In 1781, the Associated Loyalists, founded by the Fort's peculiar namesake, made it their base of operations. Occasionally, detachments from other units, such as the Loyal New England Regiment, a small group from Rhode Island, served at Fort Franklin. Delancey's men chose their spot well, constructing a formidable squarish earthwork surrounded by abysses. Fort Franklin was difficult to attack, 
Raiders attempting to take it from the west would have come by sea, land, on a narrow beach, and the scale and the high bluffs attempting to take it from the west would have had to come by sea. I did that already. On which it, it sat. The ground to the south fell off sharply, creating an excellent field of fire, and the terrain to the north was almost as good. Only the level eastern approaches, approaches afforded any prospect of success, and even that was dubious due to the size of the garrison, which numbered five to 800 men. The strength of the fort and its value to the British is made clear by the fact that it remained in operation until the last winter of the war and was never taken, though not for lack of trying on the part of the revolutionary forces. Okay, so I'm not going to get into the weeds with that. Just wanted to let you know where, what type of uh, area they were in, um, who she was, how easy they were to go over and raid um, people and take their booty. Also, I have never heard of this fort. And I lived there till I was, what, 20, 20, 30 years old? 31. I lived there till I was like 31 years old. I have never heard of this. So um, I can't even tell you anything about it. Because, again, I have no clue. <laughs> and I don't even know if it's still there. I don't even know if it was there when I lived there my whole life. You know, I mean, a lot of these forts were broken down. A lot of them were taken over. People bought them, you know, turned them into houses and, you know, mansions or whatever. Because, like I said, over on the North Shore, that's a very wealthy uh, area. Ah, okay. I have somebody in here bugging me. Don't bug me. <laughs> Anyway, so that's where she was. Um, let's see. I want to go back to see what you're going to do. You're going to do the entire diary. So let me go back to this uh, PDF, and I'll get into some of what the the overview of her before we really get into the meat and potatoes of her diary. Um, I did the family and community. Okay, this, now they, it says that they were typical of a loyalist woman because they had ties to the community and to other family members, and because they were loyalists, they were torn away from it. And her family was firm, firmly established in the community, and they were fighting on the patriot side. So this ability meant that she had close ties with family, friends, and, re and relatives, a factor that hovers as a subtext behind her diary as she describes the preparations for her departure. On one hand, she was a Schofield daughter of Sergeant Joshua Schofield of the Revolution Army, who was called to defense of New York in 1775, and a sister of Sergeant uh, Gershom Schofield, who served with the Patriot cause from 1776 to 1782. On the other hand, she was Sarah Frost, wife of Tory loyalist William Frost, a descendant of a long-established family in the Stanford community who had been proscribed by his townsmen because of his political alliances and activities during the war. Now, I want you to weigh in on this. I, I love the, how, she, how she spells this out, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Because we've been trying to do this on our own, but we haven't had somebody that looked at all of this the same way that we have, right? Right. Yeah, Although Sarah, it, go ahead. Well, it, it's really neat that um, there are people out there who want to uh, put down what really happened, you know, that, that they want to let people know not what they 
you know, not looking at it through 21st century eyes, which is unfortunately what's happening today, um, you know, even around Christopher Columbus. I think they're all looking at, they're out of context. And it's nice when people talk about what has happened in, during his, you know, our history, and they put it into the context of the time. I, I really important. Yeah, and it's very, like you said, one of the ladies we did, we had uh, talked about an essay that they had taken her completely out of context and they were, you know, feminists and they were saying, oh, she, she's a first feminist because she didn't get married and all this other baloney, which is not true because, you know, some women chose not to get married because they ended up having more rights. Yeah. So. Yeah. Not everybody okay. wants to yeah. All right. Although Sarah does not allude to these political divisions between her family and her husband, as she begins her diary on May 25th, 1783, they do inform her situation as she boards the two sisters as a part of a fleet of 14 ships carrying Tory refugees from New York to Nova Scotia, focusing primarily on the domestic shipboard lives of her husband and her two children. She nonetheless makes it clear in her entries May 30th, June 6th, and June 7th, that her parents, brothers, and sisters are remaining behind in Stamford. I am afraid I shall not hear from them again before I leave New York, she notes in her journal on June 6th. And she does close with her entry that night with the observation. It grows, it grows late, and of course, Deb will be reading this again. I know it's going to be redundant, but I, I wanted to do this as well. It grows late, so I conclude for the night, hoping to see Daddy in the morning. In fact, Joshua Schofield does come on board on June 7th, staying not only for breakfast, but to the delight of his daughter for dinner as well. You know, this must this is heartbreaking to me. I mean, I haven't seen my dad in so many years. I'm trying to get down to see him this year sometime. But, I mean, could you imagine, like, you know you're never going to see your parents ever again. And this was a close-knit community, right? Oh, yeah. I mean... This is really, this is really, this is tearing into me because I haven't seen my daddy in so long. Um, there is no indication during the visit of political differences separating her husband and her father. Nonetheless, this was a world where fellow loyalist Siler Dibble, son of the Anglican clergyman in Stamford, would later slit his throat in despair in St. John, and where, after the outbreak of hostilities, violence against civilians barring and featherings, beatings and kidnappings were perpetuated by both parties. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, um, even though this is a historical, a historical uh, endeavor, we do comparisons between what happened in the past and what's happening now. We do not throw urine. The, the conservatives do not throw urine and start riots. That is the prog. That's their modus operandi. That's what they do. We do not do it. As Estelle Feinstein has pointed out in Stanford from Puritan to Patriot, the town may have had peaceful beginnings, but by the time of the revolution, the divisiveness between the congregationalists, congregationalists and the Church of England had fueled political discord. The situation of Sylvanius Whitney, who sailed as a Tory refugee with Sarah and her husband, on the two sisters was typical of the way in which small events had become lightning rods for 
I'm not going to say this right, politicalization and violence in the highly charged atmosphere of the war. More through, act, more than through, uh, <laughs> a hard time, Deb. More through acquisitiveness <laughs> than through fidel, fidelity to Britain. Whitney in June 1775 tried to sell prescribed tea to the townspeople. The subsequent mock execution described by E.D. Huntington in his Propriety History of Stanford, Connecticut, presaged the loyalist fate in the Frost community. Um, I don't know if I'm going to get into that. Okay. It is into this intensely volatile environment that Sarah Frost was thrust by the political commitments of her husband, Captain William Frost. Described years later by his grandson as a figure who had kept out of sight because of his counter-revolutionary revolutionary activities, Captain Frost had gained notoriety in the 1780s for the two dashing escapades, for two dashing escapades. And I did want to do this because we were talking about them raiding, uh, the Loyalist raiding. Leaving Sarah and the children behind the lines in the safety of the Loyalist stronghold at Lloyd's Neck, Long Island, Frost on July 22, 1781, had led 40 men in seven boats across Long Island Sound to capture the Reverend Moses Mather and 48 male parishioners from the Stanford Congressional Meeting House. In Huntington's rather charged language, the men and older youth of the congregation were drawn up two and two in marching order and tied arm to arm. The pastor was ordered to the front alone to lead the march. All was now ready for the start. The valuable articles of jewelry found on both the men and women had been appropriated by the excellent captive. Every horse needed for the invading band had been taken, and the women and children consigned to the care of the rear guard until the captors with their prisoners and spoils should be well underway. The orders are given and driven by their former neighbors and the venal soldiery of the British power. Some 48 of our townsmen were hurried away to the boats awaiting them at the shore. They were then taken to Lloyd's Neck. Here they found not congenial friends, but many of their lifelong neighbors and kindred who the revolution had alienated and made their open and bitter enemies. The divisiveness that such a raid fostered did little to endear Captain Frost to the picture. Let me, you know what I'm doing? I want to. Make it bigger. I think that's what I'm having problems with. Too little. There we go. That's better. Okay. Um, he was therefore pursued with vigor when he was subsequently dared to visit his relatives in Stanford. Frost managed to get back to the British lines by hiding under bales of hay in a schooner leaving the port, but his highly visible exploit drew sufficient attention to him, according to his grandson, to force him to join the fleet late when it sailed from New York. Okay. Now, I'm going to Toss this over to you, Deb. He's going and running around doing all this stuff. What is she doing? She's in the encampment taking care of the kids. And worrying to death. Oh, yeah. And not knowing if her husband's going to come back or not. Yeah. Well, yeah, they none of them knew. I mean, they didn't they didn't hear from them. They might be lucky enough to have someone come by and drop a note off if that was possible. But 
you know, that the, the, the family member had written and sent on its way with a courier, but, you know, that didn't happen all that often, and everybody was moving around, and, and by the late 18, you know, the, I mean, the, the late uh, years of the war, you know, the last years of the war, things were really hectic um, in a lot of places. It, it, you know, in New York, being a loyalist, Haven, uh, you know, ships were coming in and out. People were coming in and out. You had to have a pass. Sometimes you didn't know who was running the place, whether the Patriots had taken over or the the British were there. I mean, it it was really gummed up um, back then, you know, during these years because it had been going on so long. And uh, you didn't know. You just didn't know. Um, there was a lot of skirmishes. You know, they talk about the battles, but for the most part, during, especially during the last um, last years of the the war, there was there were yeah, a few major battles, but there were a lot just a lot of skirmishes, um, especially down south because the swamp box was just you know his whole thing was just tiring them out and just wearing them down, which he did. So you never knew when, you know, something might break out in your backyard. Well, and yes, and I have to clarify to everybody, this is towards the end of the war. So the Patriots are winning now. And like Deb was saying, things are getting really complicated because people are fleeing because the Patriots are coming and they're winning. And this is right around when the French was involved too. So now... They're fighting, the French are fighting with the Americans and we're beating back the British. So for a loyalist, this was a very, very frightening, I mean, excruciatingly frightening time. Would you agree? Well, yeah, especially after you you, you probably have seen um, your neighbor's house attacked by the Patriots or uh, thrown in jail, because um, they did do that. They, they did take uh, not only loyalist men, but loyalist, you know, women and children, that they were, if they, if they had a, if there was a loyalist husband and the wife and the children were loyalists, they were thrown into, you know, the little prisons that they had uh, for, you know, these people because they were the enemy. I mean, neighbors became the enemy. This is what really gets me because I think about my neighbors um, where I am and, of course, I live in in a area that not only saw the Revolutionary War, but it also saw a lot of the Civil War in in the 1860s. And and I'm thinking, you know, trying to place myself back into that kind of time where if your neighbor wanted to you know, say, in, you know, in the Revolutionary War, if your neighbor was a loyalist and you were a patriot, you were enemies. You couldn't go over and ask for sugar, you know, a cup of sugar anymore. And and if you had seen, you know, the Patriot mobs, which there were the mobs, and the Loyalist mobs, too, they went after the Patriots, um, things just got out of hand, and it got very emotional and, and very passionate uh, between the two, uh, you know, ideas. Um that you saw 
you saw houses attacked and you saw you know your neighbors taken out of their house and their houses used as you know general washington's officers headquarters if they were fighting in the area so you were seeing a lot of stuff that was just terrifying and or you were reading about it um you know up north uh, by by this time there wasn't much activity up north in in the fighting that was mainly down south and and westward but um yeah it, it's just I mean, and you never knew whether, you know, what you were hearing was the truth. Was it as bad as that or was it worse? And if your husband was out there, your brothers or your sons were out there, um, you didn't know the truth until you saw them. So, yeah, terrifying. And then to know that you were not welcome in your home anymore. Well, and she got the double whammy because she's worried about her husband, but then her father's fighting on the other side, her brother's fighting on the other side. I mean, wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. And she, she made the mistake of marrying a loyalist, you know? <laughs> well, no, she didn't make the mistake. I mean, this happened. It was like, it was just the way it was. It, it, and even even the men in the Congress, you know, the Continental Congress, the uh um, the ones that were meeting while all this was going on, even they themselves were not all in agreement on it. I mean, look at what they had to go through just for, you know, the Declaration of Independence and how that upset so many people. If you read about it, you have to read about it because, um, yeah, the, the Declaration of Independence happened, but it didn't just, you know, a bunch of bunch of our founders got together and said, okay, we're going to write up a Declaration of Independence and everybody's on board. No, it took a while. It took a lot of debating and people very passionate on both sides. No, no independence. Let's send another petition to the king. We don't want to be free of England. We want the, the monarch protection. And then on the other hand, it was, no, we want our independence. You know, the protection's not worth living in chains. So, which I tend to agree with. Bottom line is we don't want this. (laughs) Ah. God, people, please just come back to God. Okay, so... um, whether oral history possibly embellished the story over the years is the realm of conjecture. But two of the manuscript versions of the diary began on May 25, 1783, suggest that her husband is on board the two sisters with her. Uh, let's see. Um, all right. Do you have her diary up? I do. All right. Hold on. Let me just do if I... Yeah, this is kind of getting into more of her diary that I don't. I want you to get into instead of them conjecturing over it, so we can hear it in long words. And then I'll look through this again and see what um, I can find. So yeah, let's go to her diaries. Okay. Uh, this is one that uh, it was transcribed and edited by R. Wallace Hale, who apparently did a lot of good work to help us. Uh, 
one baby and everything. So we want to pass off to our wallet. All right, now, it begins. May 25th, 1785. I left Lloyd's Neck with my family. It says 85, but I think it was 83. It says 83? Yes. Um, so there was a mis- mistype where they didn't read the three. They thought it was a five. As with all these diaries, you know, and, and it's, it's, um, it is amazing. Uh, Oh, that we have, you know, anything uh, left. So, anyways, I, it goes, she goes, I left Lloyd's Neck with my family and came on board the two sisters commanded by Captain Brown for a voyage to Nova Scotia with the rest of the loyalist sufferers. This evening, the captain drank tea with us. He appeared to be a very clever gentleman. We expect to sail as soon as the wind shall favor. We have very fair accommodations in the cabin, although it contains six families besides my own, and there are 250 passengers on board. Now, these are not cruise ships. These are, um, well, you have to go uh, look at, you know, frigates and and uh, uh, ships that, that they use uh, for transporting goods and and people, they were very big. We'll just leave it at that. Monday, 26th of May. Nothing happened today worth mentioning. We lay at anchor in Oyster Bay, just west of Lloyd's Neck on Long Island, the whole day, not having got all our passengers on board. Tuesday, May 27th. At 8 o'clock, we weighed anchor at Oyster Bay with a fair wind for New York. Past after 11, we were brought to by the guard ship at City Island. Our captain was very angry that they should bring him to, but they did not detain us long. We went on with a fair breeze through Hellgate, but just as we got through the wind and the tide headed us, and we had liked to have gone on shore, they tried twice to go on, but at length were obliged to anchor at the mouth of Harlem Creek, where we lay that night. And Hellgate, if you look at it, is pretty much just what they say. It's it, one of the more notorious um, parts of the the bay there that you have to go through to get to New York. And it was very well known. And it was, uh, they, they have pilots, you know, that would bring the, the ships through, so the pilot boats that knew how to um, not go on the rocks or hit the shoals, you know. Excuse me, Wednesday, May 28th, we weighed anchor at Harlem Creek at a quarter after six in the morning with a fair breeze, but the tide being low, we struck a rock about 15 minutes later. We soon got off, but in a few minutes struck again. About half past seven, we got off and went clear. About 10, we anchored at the lower end of the city of New York, the tide not serving to go around into the North River. At 11 o'clock, I went on shore in Captain Justin's whale boat and went to Miss McKay's. And from there, Mrs. Raymond and I went to Mr. Partlow's, where we dined and spent the afternoon. Major Hubble was there, who formally formally commanded the loyalists at Lloyd's Nest. So, um, as you can see, a lot of people knew a lot of the people in New York because they had left and they went to New York and... uh, you know, to 
they either lived in New York or they had they had gone to you know had left their places and gone to New York because it was a loyalist haven and they were safe there and they stayed with other people too. We've done women who who had to do that. They didn't know where they were going, but they were very grateful for their friends in uh, that were in uh, New York. At evening, we returned on board our ship where we drank tea and spent the evening with my little family and playing a game of cards with Billy. As I have not mentioned him before, I may say he is my affectionate husband in whom I take delight. Thursday, I rose very early intending to go on shore, but after breakfast, I had such a bad headache, I was obliged to go to bed. Billy went on shore without me. We came on board to dine. In the afternoon, he went on shore with my little son, Henry, age nine. I longed to hear them come on board again to hear what observations the child will make, for he has not been in town for some years now. He has come on board again, and he pleases me very much with his discourse about all he has seen. Okay, so far, it sounds like a cruise ship. You know, they're going on board. They're having, they're seeing friends. They're dining on, on shore, and then they come back and, you know, she's not feeling well because she's seven months pregnant. And, you know, right. And you know what? She doesn't, and, and reading this um, essay here, she doesn't mention in her diaries that she's, that she's pregnant. She just doesn't no. do it at all. I know. And she when, she, when she did the um, thing about her husband, I'm just going to read a little bit of what this author found out about him, too. Now, mm-hmm. um, let's see. Um, the warmth of their relationship, this is uh, Sour and her husband. The warmth of their relationship as they visit their friends on shore in New York, play cards, like, like you're talking about, it sounds like a cruise ship, play cards on the ship with the children or drink tea together with Major Hubble, the former loyalist commander at Lloyd's Neck, is palatable. When Sarah is overwhelmed by the heat, overcrowding, and constant delays of the fleet as it lingers in the New York area, from May 23rd until June 6th, it is her husband who cooks breakfast, brings breakfast to her bedside, alters her berth in the cabin, and collects a mugful of hailstones from a squall to make her a glass of punch. He brings her peas for her palate in New York and salmon for her table when they lay in St. John. Throughout the diary, their relationship is that of an affectionate couple who clearly share the enjoy- and enjoyment of both their children and their friends. And I wanted to point that out because, number one, where do you find a guy like this, right? Oh, really? <laughs> I mean, very like. <laughs> um, the second thing is, uh, we brought this up before, I mean, wars raging all around them. They have to flee for their lives. They don't know where they're going. They don't know the terrain. But life still goes on. That we pointed out last show. You still have to keep living. Yes. And this is showing the human, the humanness of them. You know, we we have sympathy for the loyalists as well as the patriot. It was a terrible time, you know. And like Deb pointed out, it, it's excruciating. You're having your family torn away from you, your house torn away from you. I mean, she left everything behind. They probably had a couple of trunks, and that was it. So this well, they, has, they did have their they had their house taken away from them. I know. Okay, so I'm going to probably interject if I, as I find more stuff in this uh, essay, okay? Yeah, no, that's no problem. Um, because, as I say, you know, she's just started and it's like a cruise, you know, they're just kind of hanging out, waiting, 
until they can get on their way. Well, it did going to end soon as it was, uh, you know, insinuated in, in what uh, Susan read. So anyway, continuing on, we're Friday, May 30th. I went on shore and went to Mr. Partlow's where I spent the whole day. Mrs. Schofield and Miss Lucretia Bates came there towards evening, and they gave me an account of my parents' welfare and my friends in the country. I am afraid I shall not hear from them again before I leave New York. I grow tired, so I think I quit for the night. Saturday, I got up early in the morning at Mr. Partlow's, waited some time for breakfast, and then I went out amongst the ships to trade. I dined at Mr. McKay's and went out with Mrs. McKay afterwards. Called at Mrs. Partlow's for my children and came back and met Billy at Mrs. McKay's, and we drank tea there and came on board again. They're just waiting, you know, they're, they're just waiting to be able to leave. You think, you know, you're in an airport and your your flight's delayed a couple of hours. Well, they were delayed for days. Uh, well, and where are, they get, where are they getting all this tea? <laughs> well, New York there was loyalists, and I'm sure the British brought several um, crates of it because they would not be with it. The officers would not be without their tea. So if you were a loyalist, you were still drinking tea, like the lady <laughs> who, who wasn't really a loyalist. She did leave in the Patriot way, but boy, she was drinking her tea. <laughs> that was just the way it was. Um, okay, Sunday, I got up early in the morning intending to go on shore, but being fatigued with yesterday's walk and not feeling well, Billy went on shore without me. When he came back in the afternoon, Major Hubble came with him and drank tea with us in the cabin. Monday, we are still lying at anchor in the North River, but not having any orders for sailing. Nothing happens worth mentioning. Tuesday, she went, I went on shore again to see my friends and make some purchases. Wednesday, June 4th, it being the King's birthday, there was such a firing among the ships as to astound one. It says here, the lead here is torn and part of the page missing. Thursday, June 5th, Billy went on shore. While he was gone, the ship was taken out into the stream, and I was afraid he would never find me again. Oh. Friday, June 6th, still lying at anchor, lead torn and part of narrative missing. Daddy will come on board in the morning if Billy can go and fetch him. I long to hear from Mama and my brothers and sisters, which I expect I shall by Daddy. We have a very bad storm this evening. Our ship tossed very much and some of the people quite sick, but I am in hope that the storm will soon abate. It grows late, so I conclude for the night hoping to see Daddy in the morning. Saturday, June 7th, Billy went on shore and brought Daddy on board to breakfast. He carried him on shore again, for he expected go home in the same boat he came down in. But hearing there was a vessel coming from Stanford this day, he concluded to stay and go back then. And so he came on board with Billy to dine. We had green peas for dinner, but I could eat no dinner today, though I have a great liking for peas. I have sent on shore for another mess, but I don't know whether he will get them for me. He was so cross with me. Later, he has come on board and has brought the peas. Hmm. <laughs> Sunday, June 8th, we are still lying at anchor in the North River. We expected to sail tomorrow for Nova Scotia, but I believe we shall stop at Staten Island or Sandy Hook for some days. Monday, June 9th, our women all came on board with their children, and there is great confusion in the cabin. We bear with it pretty well through the day, but at night one cries in one place and another and another whilst we are getting them to bed. 
I think sometimes I will go crazy. There are so many of them. If they were as still as common, there would be a great noise amongst them. I stay on deck tonight till nine eleven o'clock, and now I think I will go down and get to bed if I could find a place for myself. Tuesday, June 10th, I got up early, not being permitted to sleep the whole night for the noise of the children. The wind now blows very high, and the children begin to grow quite sick. My little girl has been very bad all day, but now grows better. We had orders for sailing about 10 o'clock, but the tide not serving. It was delayed till afternoon. Wednesday, June 11th, we weighed anchor in the North River about 6 o'clock in the morning and sailed as far as Staten Island. There we came to anchor about 9. I went on shore half an hour later with Mr. Gorham and his wife and Mr. Raymond and his wife taking with me my two children. There I got some gooseberries. I stayed but a short time. In the afternoon, I went on shore again with Billy and several of our people. They went to a tavern and called for a glass of punch. The landlord forgot to put sugar or rum into it, and it was comical punch, I assure you. Thursday, June 12th. I got up in the morning intending to go ashore to wash, but it looked so like rain I did not go. We are so thronged on board, I cannot set myself about any work. It is not comfortable for anybody. It's less and less like a, a cruise voyage now. Friday, June 13th, it is now about half after three in the, in the morning. I have just got up, not being able to sleep for the heat, and am sitting in the entry of the cabin as I write. It's storm, so I can't sit on deck. My husband and children are still sleeping, and I am sitting quite alone. Billy gets up and gets breakfast, but I am so unwell I lie in my berth all day. He alters my berth in the cabin for me. Saturday, June 14th, I am somewhat better this morning. Billy brought my breakfast to my bedside. We are still lying at Staten Island. We expected to sail this morning. I went on shore to wash a few clothes. Mrs. Mary James went with me. We came on board at sunset. Sunday, June 15th, our people seem cross and quarrelsome, but I will not differ with them if I can help it. Our ship is getting underway, I suppose, for Nova Scotia. I hope for a good passage. About 3 o'clock, we had a hard gale and a shower, which drove us all below. It is about 5 o'clock now, and we have come to anchor within about 6 miles of the lighthouse Sandy Hook. How long we shall be here, I don't know. About 6 o'clock, we had a terrible squall, and hailstones as big fell as big as ounce balls. I saw a great many of them picked up and brought into the cabin. About sunset, there was another squall, and it hailed faster than ever been before. Billy went out and gathered a mugful of hailstones, and in the evening we had a glass of punch made of it, and the ice was in it till we had drank the whole of it. Such an instance I never saw before at midsummer. Wow, they even had warming, or global warming then. <laughs> anyway, excuse me, my little editor. Monday, June 16th, off at last, we weighed anchor about half after five in the morning with a wind north-northwest, and it blows very fresh. We pass the lighthouse about half after seven. We have 12 ships belonging to our fleet besides the Commodores. It is now half after, and a signal has been fired for the ships to lie to for the Bridgewater, which seems to lag behind, I believe, on account of some misfortune that happened to her yesterday. It is now 9 a.m., and a signal has been fired to crowd sail again, but once more we have orders to lie to. For what I do not know is the bridge water has come up. It is now 2 o'clock, and we have again got underway. We have been waiting for a ship to come from New York, and she now 
has overhauled us. We have now a very light breeze, but have got all our fleet together. We have 13 ships, two brigs, one frigate belonging to our fleet, and the frigate is our Commodore's. It is now 3 o'clock. The men are out fishing for mackerel. Mr. Miles has caught the first. I never saw one alive before. It is the handsomest fish fish I ever saw. We are become, and I feel unwell and retired. Tuesday, June 17th. The wind has begun to blow very fresh, and I am too unwell to leave my bed. The captain says we have sailed about 6 and 20 miles from the lighthouse. This is, they're still within New York area. <laughs> and it's I know. It is. The middle of June. Yeah, and she started in the you know, the third week of May. And oh sitting on a ship. Um yep. let's see. Well you know the other thing I wanted to comment on is from her um what do you call it? From her diary it, and her bringing her father on board, her husband and her father didn't seem like they were enemies. No, no. Um, so he, well, you know, he knows he's not going to see his daughter. I mean, he must be heartbroken that they they have to go to, you know, they have to flee their home. I mean, how how can she? Imagine watching your daughter and and family leave because he's, her husband sided with the British while you fought against them. And then you know they have to leave and, and you probably never see them again. Oh, my God, that's it, 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 heart-rending. But that's... That's okay. war. Yeah, that is. So, okay. Well, and she goes where her husband goes. You know, they were very much in love and they had children and she respected his opinion. I don't know. Um, you know, a lot of these women kept their opinions to themselves. They had to. Well, and I understand, you know, it wasn't the same circumstance. I wasn't forced to leave. But my husband saw the writing on the wall as far as New York going down the tubes, and he said, we need to get out of here. And also he wasn't, he was starting to get ill. But I remember saying goodbye to my mom. And it was heartbreaking because I was, I've lived in the same town like forever. You know? <laughs> and my family was all there. And my friends that I grew up with from the high, you know, from, no, not elementary school because I was in Catholic school, from high school, and we all hung out in the same crowd because my, you know, my sister, my siblings were only like, my brother was two years younger than me. And my sister was one year, 18 months younger than him. We all went to high school together, my brother and, you know, not the whole time, but we did. We were all in the same high school. And so we hung out with the same people. When I left for Florida, it was, it was torture. I mean, I cried the first like day. And we were driving. So that wasn't too fun for my husband. But again, you know, I'm going where he is. Yep. That's the thing. And and it's sad because we're, we're, I mean, people that, you know, they have their family around them, for better or worse. I mean, you know, not everybody got along with their family, that's for sure. But a lot of these people, they all live together. They take in, you know, it, and people died, like, 
if their sister died, she had kids, they take in the kids, you know, because the father would have to go out and work and everything. And they they were close enough together, you know, because people didn't really, once you were in a town, you didn't go very far um, unless you were one of those adventurous ones and decided that you wanted your own plot of land, you know, western. Well, in all fairness, Dad, we did give the loyalists an out. All they had to do was pledge allegiance to the new America. Yeah. Well, we did. Yeah, we, they, they didn't sign the oath, and that was that. That's right. All they had to say is they pledge loyalty to the United States of America, which is kind of funny right. because the British were supposed to leave, and they never left. There were still British soldiers here, hence why they were so easy to start another war, the War of 1812. Um, yeah. But we kicked out, it's so bizarre to me because we kicked the loyalists out that wouldn't find loyalty to the United States, but British soldiers were still here. You know, that's kind of bizarre to me. Well, King George wasn't too happy. You know, you have to remember, King George kind of had it in his head that they'll see the error of their ways, you know, and then when it got to the point where um, yeah, well, when uh, Cornwallis um, surrendered, and he knew it was all over, but he was not a happy person. Well, but I'm saying we allowed the British soldiers to stay, which was breaking yeah. the Treaty of Paris. You know, what the hell were we thinking? Well, we were very nice. This is like, you know... We, we were we were very well. You know, there's so many differing um, opinions on things. It's a wonder anything got done when you really read what everybody thought about everything. And uh, it was um, I can't even imagine. Imagine all of a sudden you're not the colonies of England anymore. You're your own country. And now you have a new government, and the colonies were all very sovereign. I mean, they, they, you were from North Carolina, you were from North Carolina, and you had no ties to Connecticut except, you know, whatever you could, you know. Your government was your government, Connecticut's government was their government, and, and now it was all under one umbrella. They had never done this before. No one had. Well, anyways, getting back to the the uh, voyage. Wednesday, June 18th, I feel very well this morning and go to work, but soon the wind blows fresh and I have to go back to my berth. At noon, we were 110 miles from Sandy Hook Light with the wind very fair at southwest. At half after five, we saw something floating in the water. Some said it was a wreck. Others said it was a dead whale, but we can't tell. I wish I knew. At sunset, we are 150 miles on our way. Thursday, June 19th, we are still steering eastward with a fine breeze. We make seven miles an hour the chief part of the day. About noon, we shift our course and are steering north by east. I, I love the fact that she, she um, you know, got, to, got these details. It's not like, you know, we're just steering it's steering north by east and how many miles they are and 
he's, he's very much attuned to the details and, and everything. He's a very curious lady and wonderful. At 2 o'clock, Captain says we are 250 miles from Sandy Hook with the wind at nor- west northwest. At 6 o'clock, we saw a sail ahead. She crowded sail and put off from us, but our frigate knew how to speak to her. For at half past seven, he gave her a shot, which caused her to shorten sail and lie to. Our captain looked with his eyeglass at her. He told me she was a rebel brig. He saw the 13 stripes, and she was steering to the westward. The wind blows so high this evening, I am afraid to go to bed for fear of rolling out. Friday, June 20th, this morning, our frigate tired a signal to shift our course to north-northeast. We still have fine weather and a fair wind. Mr. Emsley, the mate, tells me we're at 5 in the afternoon, about 500 miles from Sandy Hook. We begin to see the fog come on, for that is natural to this place. At 6, our Commodore fired for the ships ahead to lie to until those behind should come up. Mr. Emsley drank tea with Billy and myself, and the fog comes on very thick this evening. I'm tired, so I think I can go to rest. Good night. Saturday, June 24th, I rose at 8 o'clock, and it was so foggy we could not see one ship belonging to our fleet. They rang their bells and fired guns all the morning to keep company with one another. About half after 10, the fog all went off so that we saw the chief part of our fleet around us. At noon, the fog came on again so that we lost sight of them again, but we could hear their bells all around us. This evening, the captain showed Mr. Frost and me the map of the whole way we have come and the way we have yet to go. He told us we are 240 miles from Nova Scotia at this time. It is so foggy we lost all our company tonight, and we are now entirely alone. Sunday, June 22nd, it is very foggy yet. No ships in sight now, nor any bells to be heard. Towards noon, we heard some guns fired from our fleet, could not tell where they was. The fog was so thick we could not see ten rods. The wind is so ahead that we have not made ten miles since yesterday noon. Monday, June 25th, still foggy. We have not seen any of our fleet this morning. Towards noon, the fog goes off fast, and in the afternoon, we could see several of our vessels. One came close alongside of us. We have but little wind, and that is ahead. Mr. Emsley says we are in 140 miles from land now. In the evening, the wind becomes fair. The fog seems inclined to leave us, and the sun looks very pleasant. Mr. Whitney and his wife, Billy, and I have been diverting ourselves with a few games of cribs. Tuesday, June 24th. Wait a minute. That's not right. Well, that must have been Monday, June 23rd. The sun, they had a hard time with fives and threes, it would appear. Um, The sun appears very pleasant this morning. Ten ships are in sight. The fog comes on, and they all disappear. We have been nearly becalmed for three days. A light breeze enables us to sail this evening two miles and a half an hour. Oh, my God, he could walk faster than that. Um, Wednesday, June 25th, still foggy. The wind is fair, but we are obliged to lie for the rest of the fleet. The Commodore fires once an hour. The frigate is not far from us, and judging by the bells, we are near... Some other ships but can't see ten rods for the fog. We have measles very bad on board our ship. Oh, dear. And you imagine if, if um, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of women on this ship, right? And how many are in their first couple of months of pregnancy? Oh, can you imagine? Oh, 
bad enough being in the first couple of months of your pregnancy, but then to be on a ship when you're, and then the measles, oh, and you don't have much room, and it's hot, and oh, oh dear. Ah, how, how amazing. Thursday, June 26th, this morning the sun appears very pleasant. The fog is gone to our great satisfaction, I bet. Canada ships are in sight. We are now near the banks of Cape Sable. At 9 o'clock, we begin to see land. How pleased we are after being nine days out of sight of land to see it again. There is general rejoicing. At half after 6, we have 12 of our ships in sight. Our captain told me just now we should be in the Bay of Fundy before morning. He says it is about one day sail after we get into the Bay of St. John's River. How I long to see that place, though a strange land. I am so tired of being on board ship, so we have as clever a captain as ever needs to live. Friday, June 27th, I got up this morning very early to look out. I can see land on both sides of us. About 10 o'clock, the wind died away. Our people got their lines out to catch codfish. About half after five, John Waterbury caught the first fish. Saturday, June 28th, got up in the morning, found ourselves nigh to land on both sides at the mouth of St. John's River. Soon after 10, a pilot came on board, and at a quarter after one, our ship anchored off against Fort Cow in St. John's River. Our people went on shore and brought on board pea vines with blossoms on them, also gooseberries, fruits, and grass, all of which grow wild. Then he say this is to be our city. Our land is to be 5 and 20 miles up the river. We are here to have, we are to have here only a building place 40 feet wide and 100 feet back. Billy has gone on shore in his whale boat to see how it looks. He returned soon after, bringing a fine salmon. He told me to get ready to go on shore, and he would take me. In a paragraph of which I admitted to copy, the writer of the diary expresses her disapprobation of the conduct of Captain Sylvanus Whitney, who was in charge of the loyalists on board the Three Sisters. Raymond confuses the vessel's two sisters and three sisters because he forbade the women to go ashore. She expressed her determination to do so even if she were compelled to go on her husband's back. She makes some caustic observations on the captain's de- desire to display his authority clad in his uniform. <laughs> well, apparently, um, <laughs> uh, he wasn't going to be sitting back. And uh, I-, I like her. She's funky. Sunday, June 29th. This morning it is very pleasant. I am just going on shore with my children to see how I like it. Later, it is now afternoon and I have been ashore. I, it is, I think, the roughest land I ever saw. It beats short rocks in Stanford. I think that is nothing to this, but this is to be our city, they say. We are to have our land 60 miles further up the river. We are all ordered to land tomorrow and not a shelter to go under. Yeah. Um. Well, but at least you, look, we've, we have um, highlighted loyalists that left in the dead of winter. Yeah. At least she was in summer. I mean, remember yeah. they, would, they would not bury them. They would just pile snow on top of the, the ones that died because you couldn't, bury anybody in the ground. It was just too hard and they had to wait for the thaw. Yeah. They were not treated very well. No. Yeah. And and in the book, it, it goes on to explain more about the different um, 
you know, the difference between the Westmont version of the diary and the Raymond version. Um, so, you know, she, it, she goes on and talks about, uh, you know, um, Mr. Whitney uh, telling her she can't go on shore. It's, it's very it's very funny. You really need to read the whole thing. Um, but let's see. Um, is it this is there to the is he there the rain or the I'm just trying to clearly uh, what we now have is a series of composite copies, edited versions, and speculations about what Sarah Frost wrote. Yet running through the McGowan diary are moments not genuine. At the conclusion of June 19th. For example, Sarah Frost notes that she has put the children to bed and I have nothing material to write, so I bid you good night. So dear to the diary is neither the and neither the Raymond or the Westmount version, although the Westmount version has detail on June nineteenth about the family sleeping arrangement. That sounds both convincingly realistic and pertinent to an eight month pregnant diarist. Um uh, let's see. Let me go down. Okay, yeah, this remains the dilemma of the Sarah Frost text. Until with luck, the 18th century manuscript copy turns up in an attic to truly retrieve Sarah Frost's voice from the vagaries of editorial selectivity, generational fashion, and harlequinization. In the meantime, readers of the Sarah Frost diary are left with the challenge of retrieving from the existing versions of the diary the encoding of a woman's silences and voice in 18th century loyalists. Which is really neat. Um, yeah, I mean these these have this diary has been through quite a few, uh, you know, different interpretations. And it, and it said in one part that during the Victoria uh, era, one of them, you know, they they omitted certain passages that they found offensive, you know. Some you know, to their disability. So we're not the only, um, if you ever read about the Victorian age, we are not the only time in history that uh, so many sensibilities have been offended. But, um, so crossing, I mean, you know, I always was, I, I never really enjoyed the journey. I always wanted to get to my destination, and it was always like, you know, beam me up, Scotty. Let's just get there. So it would have been hard for me <laughs> to have to go through the uh, the whole waiting period, um, waiting for the wind. I was the opposite when I traveled the country as a travel nurse. No, I just want to get there. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> I really, I, I literally, in, in in my book, opening a registered nurse's eyes, I I, I account, uh, recount the first time I ever saw the Rocky Mountains. I recount every every solitary thing that I saw because I just like sucked it in because mm. I knew I would never see it again. Mm. And that was the same thing when I went back to my property in Long Island. I mean, Long Island. Florida, which I absolutely loved. I miss it death. 
um, every time I would come home from working, I would take the dog out and I would walk my whole entire property because I would just suck in everything that was going on in that morning and keep it with my memories because I knew I wasn't coming back. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not like that. I, I take everything in. <laughs> And I didn't care how long it took us to get someplace. I didn't. Well, just... Once I get to the place I want to go to, then I start, you know, taking things in. It's just getting there. So is that the end of her diaries? Yeah, that was it. She got there. Um, it, it wasn't pleasant. I mean, it wasn't as bad as some of the other ones, the ones that left in, in the first exile. Um, or Exodus, I should say, uh, because they, they got up there in the wintertime. At least they're there during the summer, and they have time to build. And, and you know, basically 10 years has passed, and uh, people have been going up there. The, the British have been there since they took it away from the French during the French and Indian War, and they're, they're uh, you know, there, there has been building. There are towns. But still, it was a pretty wild place, and... Um, of course, you had the, the uh, you know, I mean, they were the American colonists. They weren't really British subjects to the British. Uh, they just didn't look at them like that. So I said they're like the red-headed stepchild. They were second-class citizens. And uh, it, it was really a struggle for them in the beginning. And this is why, you know, they're so proud of them, because they did struggle. They overcame and they made a life for themselves and their their descendants and they're you know go up there oh, i've always wanted to go up to newfoundland um one of these days i'll i'll make it up there but uh it's just it's got such an incredible history well but deb but deb what, what you the reason that they survived and persevered is because they were married well, yeah. They had that in them in and was handed down to them that, yeah, you have, you know, you make your own way. You don't wait for somebody to hand you something. You can do it. You do it yourself. You do it for your family. That was our rugged individualism, which the left, the progs hate to death because it's very dangerous, okay? Yeah. And that's the reason that we've been losing this battle is because we're so independent when it comes to conservatives. We're very independent. The rest of them just follow each other, sniffing each other's butts. I mean, they might as they're just lemmings. We're not like that. We still, some of us, a lot of us still have that independent, we can get through this, we're going to do this, no matter what. And that comes from the, the, our ancestors that came over here, Europeans, get over it, um, trying to find a better life and fleeing persecution. So even though they were loyalists, they were still Americans. And that's what gets me about these frogs. They're not Americans anymore. They don't want to be Americans. And it really scares me because that's a scary situation. Yeah. Yeah, it, you know, it, 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 it just kills me when these kids, you know, whine and chew. It's so hard. And it's like, well, yeah, but we said it wasn't going to be. I mean, that's that's just a challenge. You know, that's life. 
nothing worthwhile is easy. If it's easy, good. But uh, yeah, it's it's really it's really something what these these women go through went through, and there are other um, women on this site. Um, they have other uh, women that. Uh, let's see, we have the three generations of the Winslow family and five other loyalist women in colonial New Brunswick. So, you know, there's um, more information on some of the, the women that were, that, were uh, that made the exodus up to Canada. But what was it like? Let's see. She landed on St. John's, right? St. John's River. Yeah, that's the and that we need to kind of get into St. John's River. I look I put up a little thing about New Brunswick. Mm-hmm. Um to go over because let me see where I got it. English. Immigration and settlement in New Brunswick. Now, if you look at the map, and I am looking at the map. It's showing where New Brunswick and Nova Scotia was. And that's where most of the loyalists went. And believe it or not, it's like, they're like little islands. Yeah. Which is weird because they ended up being very, very um, overpopulated. Yeah, right. Um. Yeah, it rises in northern Maine and flows northeast into the forest of the Madawaska County to Edmonston, where it is joined by the Madawaska River and turns southeast, forming much of the border between Maine and New Brunswick. It is not little children, it's dogs. They come visit. All right. Um... Let's see. Near the St. John, that up. Near the city of St. John, the river enters Longreach and Narrow Lake and receives the Kennebecatonetic. Oh my, Kennebecatonetic River from the northeast. I could live in Canada. I couldn't say any of these words. At St. John, the powerful Bay of Fundy tides throw the river back through a narrow gorge called Reversing Falls. Dumont and Champlain, anchored in St. John Harbor and named the river 24 June 1604, the feast day of St. John. Well, there you go. Okay. I like how they do that. Okay, so let's St. John. Um, incorporated as a city in 1785, population 70,063 in 2011. That's very nice. Uh, can we have a little more? Okay. Let's see. In 1701, the newly appointed French governor of Acadia, Jacques-Francois de Brion, destroyed the fort and consolidated his forces across the bay at Fort Royal. Not until the 1730s did Acadians from other parts of the Bay of Fundy begin to settle the Swamp River. Okay, let's move down to our people. The beginnings of permanent English settlement occurred in the 1760s with the arrival from Boston of 
St. James Simons and James White, each of whom established dwellings at the foot of present-day Fort Howe Hill. These three loyalist 18th-century merchants trading with the native people in the garrison and formed ties with the British at Halifax. In 1783, this harbor community greatly expanded with loyalists settled on the east side of the harbor in Carrtown, on the west side in Carlton, and on the north side in Portland. In 1785, Carlton and Carrtown were incorporated, taking the name St. John, the first incorporated city in what is now Canada. New Brunswick was made a separate colony in 1784, and St. John served briefly as the provincial capital before the capital was moved upriver to Fredericton. Um, let's see, the city's early economy emerged through the timber trade, trading and shipbuilding. I bet it did. Quickly growing in prominence as a port, St. John's lumber yard supplied square timber and later sawn lumber to Great Britain and the West Indies. Its shipyards produced vessels as early as 1770, which transported the forestry products and also became export commodities themselves. Many of the city's shipbuilders and ships, such as the Marco Polo, became famous. Equally significant, the waterfront produced the city's largest labor union, which by 1911 had affiliated with the International Longshoresmen's Association. So there you are. Yeah, so there we are. Okay, so all these loyalists are going up, and they, they're creating this place. Um, I mean, really expanding it because there were so many of them. And um, they were probably Anglicans, Church of England. Well, in the 1820s to 1840s, Thousands of Scots and especially Irish came in. So that altered the whole landscape. How am I? Well, and there was was a lot of things going on even previously because um, after the seven, this is from Wikipedia. After the Seven Years' War, most of present-day New Brunswick and parts of Maine were confirmed as part of the colony of Nova Scotia and designated as Sunbury County. After the American Revolution, loyalists such as Harvard-educated Edward Winslow saw themselves as the natural leaders of their community. They were not appreciated by the pre-loyalist population in Nova Scotia. As Colonel Thomas Dudas wrote from St. John, they, the loyalists, have experienced every possible injury from the old inhabitants of Nova Scotia. So Nova Scotia was partitioned. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is like a year after the war, well, the treaty. In 1784, Britain split the colony of Nova Scotia into three separate colonies. New Brunswick. Um, I can't see this. My screen's all screwed up. Cape Brenton Island. And present-day peninsula of Nova Scotia. In addition to the adjacent colonies of St. John's Island, renamed Prince Edward Island in 1798, and Newfoundland, so they split the whole thing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. Um. The colony of New Brunswick was established as a separate province by an order and council in Great Britain. 
Great Britain, the 18th June of 1784. Okay, so this is, these uh, loyalists have been flooding in into this place for like five or six years already, right? Uh-huh. Because the war ended in 1784, and they were, they were having problems, I mean, 1783, and they were having all these problems by 1784. So yeah. she's coming in, and she's coming into all this. She's part of all this now. Yep. I mean, this is a this is a hard road. I mean, this is a hard road. Uh huh. Yeah, I'm reading about the um, the first uh, the first settlement um, in Halifax when two thirds of the people of Nova Scotia were of Yankee birth or parentage. And then Halifax soon became an armed camp. Most of the British troops destined to fight New England went there to New York. And when General Howe abandoned Boston in 1776, he sailed to Halifax with many of the king's supporters. And uh, they arrived in crowded ships with health and strength almost exhausted. Profit-hungry local inhabitants charged the refugees six times the usual rent for miserable lodging to double for food and clothing. By May, many of them had sailed for England. It was uh, between 72 and 81, the population of Nova Scotia dropped from 19,000 to 12,000. But by 1784, after the continued arrival of new loyalists, the population soared to 32,000. That's a big jump. Oh, my. I love this, uh, there's a painting that I'm looking at too, and it says, The Coming of a Loyalist Painting by Henry Sadham, showing a romanticized view of the Loyalist arrival in New Brunswick. Yeah, I saw that. Ah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So they weren't, they weren't even, uh, well, the Acadians came to a Louise, that's where they fled from, New Brunswick to Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Most people don't understand that. All right. Well, we can end the show early. Well, that would be nice. Okay. It's been a very busy week this past week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well. Well, I hope you uh I hope you have an easier week this week. Okay. Me too. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, we have declared here on this show that we are having a uh revolution. It's a revolution of knowledge. And we are weaponizing knowledge because the frogs and the communists I've decided to weaponize our language. So we're going to weaponize history and knowledge. And one of the ways that you can further that endeavor is to go to uncooperativeradio.com, uncooperativeradio.com. There you will find a political uh, show by my husband and I, uh, uncooperative radio show. 
You'll also get the Women of the Revolutions episodes. You can download them for free. And Patriots Pub, Patriots Pub. Patriots Pub, you have to listen from episode one because it is linear. The other two shows are not. And episode one is the uh, Patriots Pub is very important because it is the Continental Congress of 1787, day, the Philadelphia Continental Congress, in case people don't know what was in Philadelphia, of 1787, day by day, done by three self-taught scholars using James Madison's notes. It will tell you exactly what the founders were thinking about when they made the, the um, Constitution. And the Constitution, was, the, the convention was a runaway convention, and this is a little bit of knowledge you could tell even your own conservatives because they have no clue. They were sent there to fix the Articles of Confederation. The Articles of Confederation were devised at the beginning of the war so that we could have legitimacy through the rest of the world. We had what was called a, a contract, a charter, whatever you want to call it. It was to show the world that we were united and this is how we were going to run this new country. Well, it failed. And the state said, you know, we got to fix this. And that's what they went there to do is to fix it. Well, they ended up creating a new government. That's the definition of a runaway convention. You go to go fix something, and instead you create something brand new. And that's what they did. And this government, not now because we're in a socialist hellhole, was the only one of its kind in the entire world and the entire world's history. Thank you, Prague, for ruining that one. But if you go there and you listen and take notes, you can download all the episodes, like I said, start from episode one. And you will have tools to fight this war, and we are in a war. We are not into a bloody revolution, but we are seriously at war, unfortunately, with each other. So go to uncooperativeradio.com, uncooperativeradio.com, arm yourself with the weapon of knowledge. And with that, Deb always takes us out. Well, I have a, we have lost more of our kids in uniform um, in Nigeria, Nigeria, uh, do they keep changing the, uh, changing the name, um, Niger, they're in Niger, I believe it is, well anyways, over in Africa. Nigeria. Nigeria, okay. Yeah. And I didn't know if they had, no, it's not Nigeria, where Hold on just a minute. Anyways, we've lost four of our guys, special ops guys. Um, sad to say, uh, four of our best were killed last week. So all our hearts and our prayers go out for their families. Um, we're going to be sending more of our kids over there. Um, I mean, a lot of them are already there that we don't know about. And apparently the uh, the news people don't deem it newsworthy. And probably that's just as well because a lot of these, uh, a lot of our kids are doing um, special ops. And the least said the better about all that. But still, uh, the fact that we have million-dollar babies um, 
kneeling on a football field while the national anthem is played and the flag is, the colors are shown. Um, while these guys are out there giving their all, some of them. I, I don't have words for that. I mean, I'm not a big football fan anyways, but even if I was, uh, I wouldn't. I, I, it's just, it's so heartbreaking. Because I know Gold Star Mother, and uh, they don't deserve that. Um, and number two, they do not live in another country. I want to go find out what oppression means. Go to North Korea. Thank you very much. Or go to Africa. Try Somalia. Northern Somalia. You want to you want to find out what oppression is all about. Um, but anyways, I, I just my heart my heart is hurting again, and we've lost a few more, quite a few, unfortunately, in training accidents in the past six months because uh, certain. Oh, leaders in suits think they know better, and they have really um, crushed our military, and they have not given them the equipment updated or otherwise that they need, and everybody bitches about how much money it costs. Well, you know, it doesn't have to cost a lot of money if you do it correctly, but the government doesn't seem to know how to do that. And, yeah, I am just angry. I am angry that um, we have such disrespect in this in this country right now when when the kids that I know, the young people that I know who wear uniforms, blue, you know, whatever color the firemen are wearing now, um, <laughs> I'm not sure, <laughs> kind of that tan, glow-in-the-dark yellow thing, um, but whatever uniform they put on in the morning, they are amazing people and they are walking towards the bullets, the fire, the danger not throwing a ball on a field and they're not getting paid what the kids throwing balls on a field are getting paid. Um, a lot of them don't, when they come home, they don't have the medical, uh, the medical um, options that uh, kids throwing a ball on a field have either. So, Please, if you can have a VA clinic, center, hospital near you, go visit. Talk to the uh, vets there. You'll find there's quite a few wonderful people uh, that have great stories to tell. They'll share them with you. Ask them how it's going. How are they being treated? If they need anything? And if it's uh, yeah, it's really kind of shitty here, or no, we could really use this. Um, make some noise. Talk to the administration. You can go right to the administrator's office. You can call up your uh, Congress critters, and you can go to your, um, you can find your VFW, American Legion, or Rolling Thunder chapter around you, and you can let them know that something needs to be fixed because they attend meetings at their local VA hospital once a month to check in on how it's going. So uh, if you do find out that maybe your hospital is not up to snuff or there's stuff that's going on that shouldn't be, you can call those three people um, 
or those three uh, organizations. Um, and I know this because I was a Rolling Thunder liaison to our local uh, VA hospital uh, a few years back. So, and it makes a difference. It makes a difference. And they would love to know because they are definitely into uh, keeping an eye on our vests and making sure our vests get what they need. They've been fighting, well, since what, 1990, about, no, 1980s, about Agent Orange. And it just, I tell you. But anyway, um, say a prayer for our kids in uniform. Blue, red, camouflage, all our kids that are fighting the fight so others don't have to. Um, and with that, I hope you enjoyed the show. And we should be back next week, same time, and, um, unless something happens, which is often does to us, but we try to maintain a consistent schedule. And you all stay safe out there, and uh, God bless you, and God bless this country. May our leaders have wisdom foisted upon them, because they don't seem to be wanting to take it upon themselves. Uh, and y'all have a good week. Stay safe out there, and God bless. Good night, Loki. Miss Soul. See you next week. Same time, same place.